as a congregation, and we thank you that we come to the giving God. We have nothing to give to you. We respond in your great gifts to us. So we thank you that you do forgive our sins because of the shed blood of Christ. And we thank you that you give us your word. You speak to us every Sunday to train us in your ways, to show who you are, and to reaffirm our need to depend on you and follow you. And we thank you that you bring us together around the table as your congregation so that we can feast with you and look at each other like people do at home around the table and think about stimulating one another unto love and good deeds. So we thank you that you've invited us into your presence today, and we pray that you would bless us with your word for the glory of Christ. Amen. Some familiar words. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the chief angel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Not the white fluffy clouds, the cloud of God's glory. To meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So if you think about going through the New Testament particularly, there are passages in the Old Testament, of course, that speak about resurrection much more in the New Testament. But if you think about the various passages, all of them are written with a purpose. They have a purpose behind why they're recorded in the place they're recorded in each epistle or the Gospels. And uh, so they all talk about the resurrection, affirm the resurrection, that the dead will rise, and those who are alive when the Lord returns, they will also be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But the purpose behind each uh, pericope, each statement, is different. So here in 1 Thessalonians, the purpose is comfort. And of course, when, when we lose a family member or a good friend, we're uh, grieved. And Paul wants us to be reminded by the truth, the word that he received from the Lord, that those who have fallen asleep in Jesus will come to life again. They'll be raised from the dead, and we will meet with them in the cloud. 
That's not why 1 Corinthians 15 is written. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, just look at verse 8. Remember, in this first paragraph, which runs through verse 11, Paul is giving the gospel that he received and which he and other apostles and other men preached to the Corinthians, and they heard it and they believed. And the basic gospel is given to us in verses 3 and 4. This is what I call the narrow gospel. This is what you have to believe if you're going to call yourself a Christian and if, if in fact, you're going to be regenerated. This is, this is precisely what you believe. But it's narrow in the sense that it's not talking about the whole wide spread of the gospel, although 1 Corinthians 15 does. He starts with the narrow gospel. For I delivered to you of first importance what also I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then skipping down to verse 8, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, his grace towards me did not, prove, did not prove to be vain, but I labored even more than all them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And then just slide down to the end of the book in verse 58, and Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, chapter 15, verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. God's grace toward me didn't prove to be vain. I labored more than everyone else, Paul says, not boasting because he realizes, as any of us know, that we accomplish what we accomplish only by God's grace. But Paul says his grace wasn't in vain. It didn't turn out to be empty. Look what's been accomplished. And then he comes down to the end and he says, okay, now that we've talked about the doctrine of resurrection, and that's what chapter 15 is about. So now you be steadfast, immovable. Well, what were they moving from? The problem was people in the church were saying there's no resurrection. Now, how would you live your life if you thought to yourself, well, there's no resurrection. When I die, that's it. I'm just dead. I don't exist anymore. Well, I propose, I, I, you know, there's that famous line by Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. And he's saying, you know, I'm a thinking person. I mean, I'm thinking, so I must be. That's just philosophy. 
Try this one on. I say to you, you cannot imagine yourself as not existing. It's impossible. Can you? Well, you can think, you know, somewhat from a distance. Well, there's a possibility that when you die, that's all there is. But it's impossible for you to think, I will not exist. My thinking will end. Uh, you can't do that. But if you hide behind the idea that there is no resurrection, and Paul tells us, and the author of the Hebrews tells us, every, everybody knows there's judgment after death. Everybody knows life goes on after death. People hide from it. And they hide behind the idea that we're just a materialistic world. Now, people have different philosophies, but that's the one of our day. And so when you're done living, you're just done. Your body turns to dust and is spread throughout the universe. You don't exist. If you thought that way, how would you live? Well, so Paul says, all right, now that we've gone through this, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, this word toil, is the same word that Paul used up concerning himself. It, it, it's amazing to me that translations are not consistent in their translation, so we can't see it in English. The word toil is the exact Greek word as labor. Knowing that your labor is not in vain, it's not going to be empty. What you lived your life for has a purpose and has a future, especially, notably, those who do what they do in the Lord. So Paul's labor is the labor of an apostle to go out and to proclaim the gospel like a herald running from town to town with the greatest news anyone has ever heard. Christ is risen. That's Paul's toil. That's his labor. And he pays dearly for that labor, and he loves that labor. That's not the labor of all of us. We're not gifted as apostles here today. We may be evangelistically minded. God's bent us that way. And so we engage in evangelism. And of course, in some sense, broadly speaking, all of us must be evangelists, not in the narrow sense. But our lives are light, as Jesus says. It's telling a story to people. And uh, Paul tells us that whatever we do, we do as unto the Lord. So everything we do, we're supposed to be doing it in the face of a risen Jesus. And so that people can look and say, well, my goodness, there is somebody who believes in the resurrection and they're living in light of the fact that one day they will rise from the dead. Well, if you don't have that, you can just live a dissolute life of no value. You can uh, be a terrible person. All those things. But Paul's saying, no. When you think about the resurrection of the dead, then you turn out, you should be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And that work, let me just say, I've said it before, is very broad. Because as you work your way through the Bible, life is given by God. 
He's created us. He's given us things to do, to get married, to have family. All of that is done in the Lord. Now, we're forgetting it these days as Christians because we tend to accept the American dream. What we want is, you know, a certain size of house, a couple of cars, and we want to have fun and relax and enjoy life. Well, of course, none of that's wrong in itself. But the question is, are we remembering to toil, labor in the Lord? Like laboring for our children, teaching them the ways of the Lord. Because the Bible is very clear. You train a child in a certain way, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And yet, as we've been saying, millennials are departing in droves. What happened? Well, the training must be lacking. So, we need to labor in the Lord. And Paul writes this chapter to make us realize, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, and that means certain things. And he's been working his way through, and we saw, first of all, that some were saying there is no resurrection, and Paul counters that in verses 12 through 19. If there's no resurrection, not even Christ was raised from the dead, and if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, well, we're a bunch of liars, and you're still dead in your sins, and those who have died have perished, and we have no hope, and we look really stupid. We're to be pitied of all men. And then in verses 20 through 28, just this section that we could spend, oh, several weeks on, he said, uh, look, the Old Testament first fruits is a picture. See, even the Old Testament teaches resurrection in a basic form of one of Israel's feasts, first fruits. Christ is the first fruit, and after Christ comes, the whole crop comes in. All of those who are in Christ are going to be raised with him, and his kingdom will be completed when everything is subjugated under his feet. And then just a little argument in verse 29 of chapter 15 about the baptism of the dead. And if you open up your commentaries, you can find 50 different explanations about it. And I've suggested to you, and of course, I'm always right, so you don't need to look at any other commentary. I suggest to you that it goes back to the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, and it has to do with washings, because when you're sent away from the tabernacle because you're unclean, you're dead! Because we define death as the body dies. It doesn't breathe anymore. That's death for sure. But in Genesis, when God said, in the day you eat, you will die and die. Adam didn't die that day. In fact, he lived 930 years longer. But he did die because he was cast out of God's presence. He's dead. There are a lot of walking dead people. They're not in the presence of God. They don't know anything about God. They're dead. Paul's labor is to bring them to the true knowledge of God. So the baptisms then were the washings, and we talked about it, that got people uh, cleansed so that they could come back to the temple. And then last week we were just looking at verses 30 through 34, and essentially Paul is arguing in 30 through 34 that 
uh, if there's no resurrection of the dead, why would I be doing what I'm doing? Why would I put my life in danger if there is no resurrection of the dead? And if you would just look down chapter 15, verse 33, we're going to bridge into our section today. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now this word corrupts is going to be used in our section today. And the word corrupts is a word that means to decay. It has to do with decay. So you uh, hang around people that are teaching the wrong stuff. And you let your kids hang around the people who are, you know, not behaving, not, they're not brought up in the right. Well, that tends to corrupt, to decay your kids. If you fill your mind with uh, certain reading material that is not of the right sort, it's going to decay the way you think. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So he says, you know, you guys have been walking around like you're a bunch of drunks, stumbling around, and it's time to come out of your drunken stupor and wake up because you don't know God. Now, there's a basic sense that every Christian knows God. We know that from John chapter 17, verse 3. Because knowing God or trusting Christ is defined as knowing God. But like any relationship, it starts out with the basics. You don't know very much, and it grows 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 and it expands and you know, still even. You're getting old, you've been married to your wife for 43 years, and you still weren't learning things about her you didn't know. And now you can say, well, I know her even better now. But when I first married her, I thought I knew her, and I didn't really know her. Now I know her. And there are a lot of people who think they know God, but they don't spend much time in his word, and they don't spend time with his people. And they don't go to church, and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm good, I know God. And Paul says, no, I speak this to your sin. A bunch of you don't know God. Well, how does he know? Because they're saying there's no resurrection of the dead. Well, then we come to the last part of the chapter, and I've divided it in two parts. Actually, Paul's divided it in two parts. And so this morning, we're going to look at verses 35 through 49. And in one sense, it's rather simple. It's rather simple. So notice what Paul says in verse 35. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Now, this is not just a, uh, a, a uh, ignorant, you know, so, somebody who's a little naive and they want knowledge. This is an interlocutor. In other words, the questioner asks because they think these questions prove there's no resurrection. How are the dead raised? <laughs> I haven't seen anybody raised. All things remain just as they are. Nobody's been raised that I've seen. What kind of body do they have? Look, when somebody dies, you put them in the ground and they decay away. And, and you're talking about resurrection. And there, there are lots of people that there's not a part of their body to be found in a grave. It's all decayed away, floated away in a cloud of dust. And you're saying there's a resurrection of the dead? And we know that Paul is not treating this as just a, a, 
as a good question that he's going to answer, because notice verse 36. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard. The Greek does not have the word you there. It just says fool. Paul says, hey, stupid. That's what he's saying. Well, now, wait a minute. That seems rather harsh. Because Jesus said, you know, if you say to somebody, you fool, you're in danger of hell. Well, I'll tell you, first of all, these are different words. Stupid would be a good translation. Fool would be a good translation. But it's a word that means to be mindless. It's the word mind with a awe put in front of it. So, like, awe, moral. There's no morals. Now, you don't have any mind. You're just stupid. So Paul says, you fool. That which you show, sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the, <coughs> you do not sow the body which is to be, but a naked seed is the word. And the reason Paul uses the word naked is because as you read through the section we're looking at, you realize we're, we're back in Genesis chapter 1. This is where he's drawing from. Allusions to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. And so the word naked comes up in chapter 3. They saw that they were naked. They're just a naked seed. And of course, it has a terrible connotation by the time they realize this because now they're naked in the sense they have no glory to them. Nothing's left but depravity, sin. That which you sow, uh, so verse 34, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a naked grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished or as he willed, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. So what he's telling us is, wait a minute. Just, you just go out in your garden and you look, and you can see, if you put a little thought to it, resurrection from the dead. You take a little seed and you plant it in your garden, and what happens to that seed? That seed doesn't come up. It decays. It dies, and up comes a different body. And you didn't design that body, Paul says. God designed that body, and to each seed he gives a body. So you should just be able to look at the way God has done things, and you realize, my goodness, death is not the end. And in fact, in some sense, death is the beginning. So notice verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. So now he's expanding from seeds 
and he moves into flesh. So we're back in Genesis. We have birds, and we have animals, and we have fish, and we have men, the main categories that come in Genesis. And he's saying, look, this is what resurrection is like. Because when God created, well, it was out of nothing. So there was no cow. God created a cow. Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 and following tells us the animals that God had created from the dust, he brought them before Adam so Adam could name them. And that's where Adam discovered there wasn't one for him. God had to create one for him, a mate. So we have seeds, we have flesh, and then we have heavenly bodies and earthly bodies just in general. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Now just look at that so also is in verse 42. Jump down to verse 45. Uh, not verse 45. Jump down. Yes, verse 45. So also. See, there it is again. And then jump down to verse 49. And just as. So we have so also, so also, and just as. These are our markers in this paragraph to show us Paul's shifting thought. So he moves from one category to the next category to the next category, but he is really just talking about the resurrection of the dead and how we gain this resurrected body. So in, in uh, verse 42, he says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Now, what is he picking up on? He's picking up on what he has just said, the glory of the sun, the moon, and the stars, and then you take all the stars, we can see one sun and one moon, but all these stars we can see, they all differ in glory. And so he, he's looking at these lights, thinking about these lights, and he's calling that glory. But when you think about the word glory in the Bible, you have to remember this idea of the heavenly bodies and glory goes back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, where the sun and the moon and the stars were put into the heavens to rule. The greater one, the sun rules the day, the lesser one rules the night, and the stars are brought in, and all of these various lights rule the earth. Paul wants us to think about that. Of course, the sun is this bright light, it's very glorious, but that's not really the idea he's picking up on. He's picking up on the idea the sun is what rules the earth by day. And the moon rules the earth by night. We need the sun and we need the moon or we would be in big trouble. Then he says in verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body, the human body, is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. This is the same word as bad company. Corrupts, decays, good morals. It's sown a perishable body. It's raised an imperishable 
body. It is sown in dishonor. Some of your Bibles may say shame. It's the word from which we get the, word, the name Timothy. It's a word in Greek that means money. It's a word that when you put an A in front of it in English, you negate it. And that's what's happened here with the word dishonor. We negate it. So what does it mean? Well, it means they have no honor. It's sown without honor. It is raised in glory. Now, these two words, honor and glory, again, they're all over in the Bible, and they belong together because they take us right to how God has made man. So you look at the sun, you see a ruler. You look at the moon, you see a ruler. You look at the stars, you see rulers. That's why Joseph, in his dream, saw his family as the sun and the moon and the stars. And they all bowed down to him. You mean your mother and I are going to bow down to you, says his father? You see? He's a greater ruler than the sun and the moon and the stars, says Joseph. And then you work your way through the Bible and you discover sun, moon, and stars, just like in Genesis chapter 1, where they're defined as ruling the day and ruling the night. Now they become symbols all the way through the Bible for government. And lo and behold, Flags all over the world have sun, moon, and stars. Where's it come from? It comes from the Bible. They don't know it anymore, but it's the way God created it. And so when we think about men and women who are sown perishable and raised imperishable and sown in no honor and raised in glory, we're talking about, okay, we die, we get put in the ground, and then one day we're going to be raised up. Are we going to glow like the sun? No, eh, probably not. What are we going to do? We're going to rule like the sun. You're sown with no honor. You're raised with glory and honor. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in no honor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised, it is raised in power. Excuse me. Try to make that vibrate, and for some reason I can't do it. That shows you what age group I'm in. So, just think about this now. Think about yourself and your body. If you're young, you don't think about this quite yet. And you get to my age. I had my first spinal surgery when I was 40 in my neck. And I asked the doctor, you know, doc, why, why do I have problems here? How old are you? I'm 40. That's why you have problems here, he said. Now it's moved all the way down my spine. And I'm going in for my third surgery on my spine in June. And now, now I'm 66, you know, and pretty soon if they fuse all these discs, I won't be able to bend whatsoever. Just be standing up all the time. You know, because we're weak. We're decaying. And uh, we lose our hair. We lose our teeth. We lose our hearing. We lose our eyesight. 
We lose our muscles. We get fat. You know, and everybody's got this problem of self-image. Because, you know, you want to look good. You want to be viewed as good. And you look at yourself in the mirror and say, ain't so good no more. And so, you know, you kind of feel bad about yourself. Now, look at this. We're going to get a new body. And self-image will never again be a problem. Because nothing will decay. Not even your brain will decay. Nothing will decay. And you won't be weak anymore. You won't, as you're growing old, feel your muscles decaying. Instead, when you're raised, you'll be raised in power. And when you're raised, you won't be a nobody. No honor. You'll be raised in glory. You'll be a somebody. I mean, if you just look at it from that perspective, it's going to take a lot of grief away from your life. A lot of that worrying about self, it'll all be gone because God is doing this tremendous thing and it all becomes, comes because of this narrow gospel. Christ died for our sins. Why are we decaying? Because of sin. Why are we forgetful? Because of sin. All of these are the effects of the fall. But all of this is going to be reversed and we will be somebodies. So just look back down at verse 44. It is sown a natural body. Let's start at verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there also is a spiritual body body so natural and spiritual there are two words in the Greek that are used about us sometimes we're told we have a soul sometimes that's just translated life it's the Greek word that comes from the Old Testament Hebrew word nephesh you see it in Genesis chapter 2 God formed man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the nephesh of life. Man comes alive. Some of your translations later on where we're going to see soul will say life. Become a living being. So soul and spirit. So we're sown soulishly. We're raised spiritually, natural, and spiritual. Tsukos is the first word from which we get psychology. Numa, numa is the second word from which we get the word spirit and the word wind, that whole word grouping, that's where it comes from. But we think of natural life. Right now we have natural life. We're living in these bodies. And one day we'll get a new body and it will be a spiritual body, which has led some people astray, thinking, okay, over here we have the physical. And so in various religions, the physical is downplayed as if it's not good. God said, it's really good. 
And some religions say, oh, no, 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 you need to get rid of that physical. Don't worry about that stuff. Don't, don't cater to it whatsoever. What you need to cater to is the spiritual, that part you can't see, the everlasting. The Bible doesn't speak that way because we're one composite being. In one sense, you can't really separate us. There's an unnatural separation when the body quits breathing and we go on living, but that's why there's resurrection, to put us back together again, because that's how God made humans, and that's how he wants humans to be. He wants humans to be a whole person who is a body. So some people say, okay, so right now we live this natural life, and we're just waiting for that spiritual life, and they think about not a body because they're already downplaying the body they're thinking about something that's spirit being like ghostly like something you can't really describe the bible doesn't know that kind of stuff no the spiritual body is just as physical as the natural body they're both physical the difference is this one could decay this new one can't decay the difference is this one could be a nothing, but this one will be a something very glorious. This one could grow weak, but this one will never grow weak. It'll always be powerful. And that's what resurrection is from this body that we stick in the ground and it turns back into dust to this body which will be raised from the dead. Well, so, you know, it's a picture. Bodies don't really grow into a plant like a seed does. But God creates anew the body. Because many bodies, I mean, you can go dig up graves and you've embalmed them and much of the body may still be there. But if you live out another 500 years, there won't be much of it at all left. And you live out another 1,000 years or 2,000, there will be nothing left. It'll all decay. It'll just be gone. So what are you going to raise? It's a picture. You put somebody in the ground and like a seed, that's where he starts, like a seed, boom, it's going to come up. But we're not to think there's some property within the body that's going to make it rise. No, it's over here on this side. God creates a new body, but they are intricately related together. They belong together. So that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he had a physical body that he died in, and he had a spiritual body that was just as physical that he was raised in. There it is. And... That physical body had nail prints in the hands that will never be gone. Those are his glory. It has a spear wound in his side that will never disappear. That is his glory. But when you looked at him, you could see that's Jesus. Now, Jesus started his ministry at the age of 30. And he was raised from the dead at the age of 33. 
and some people die before they're born, and some people die as infants, and some people die as young children, and some people die as young men and women, and some people live to mo middle age, and there are all kinds of catastrophes and death, and some people live like Grace's mother to 95 or beyond. I saw on television the other day the oldest woman in America, 116, she died. What are you going to look like in heaven? Well, I don't know. Here's what I do know. When God created Adam and Eve, he did not create them as infants. He created them as adults who married and bore children. So when we get to heaven, I don't want to say it that way. When we die, we will go to heaven. But we won't have a body. I said it wrong. See, no body in heaven. But those who are in heaven, when Jesus comes, their spirit, their soul, whatever you want to call it, is going to come with Jesus. And their body that's recreated is going to come up and they're going to be reunited as one. And we're going to be, if we're alive at that point in time, transformed and we'll have new bodies and then we'll be with the Lord forever. But not in heaven. No. We're made for the earth. We're going to be on the earth. Now, we don't have time to explain all that. Our point today is to see that we move from this decaying, weak, dishonorable body into this new body that's called a spiritual body, but still totally physical. And it's imperishable. And it's glorious because God made man to rule. And it has the power that a ruler needs. And it's spiritual. And Paul says, if there's a... Well, let me read it. Verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written. So our first so was back in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. So also it is written. So the first thing he wants us to know is we can look around and if we use the brains that God gave us, you would know without even picking up a Bible, when people die, they're going to be resurrected. Because you put this seed into the ground and it pops up. The second thing he wants us to know is that you start out natural, you become spiritual. If there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body, and he gives us a scriptural argument. Verse 45, so also it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living soul, which was translated natural above. The last Adam became 
a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The word earthy means of dust. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, the ones of dust, so also are those who are earthy, the ones of dust. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Okay, so the first thing he wants to know is we'll go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and we see what he's been describing as the natural. This is just what Scripture said. Adam became a living nephish, a living soul. The second Adam became a life-giving spirit. He doesn't make a court fair, but of course we know that's exactly what happened. The man, Jesus, died and he was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, according to the scriptures, and he ascended into heaven. And he sat down in a glorified body that couldn't decay. It had no weakness. It was full of power. And it was glorious because when he sat down, he took charge. A man took charge. His name is Jesus. And he's sitting right there now, running the whole world. And that's what's going to happen to us. That's what he wants us to know. See, this is even what scripture is showing us, he says. Now, let's read that again, verses 45 and following, and we're close to the end here. So also it is written, the first Man, Adam. That sound means I'm supposed to quit. Just ignore that. The, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, natural. The, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He sits down, and what happened? Well, at the feast, Jesus stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. And out of his inmost beings will flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke about the spirit that was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And he goes up and he sits down, and what happens? On Pentecost, the spirit comes. And everyone who comes to Christ has the Spirit. And Jesus is the life-giving Spirit. And that Spirit now comes and lives in us. What does that make us? Tell me. Life-giving spirits. We don't give in the same way Jesus does, but out of our inmost being flows rivers of living water as people watch the way we live, the way we work, the way we tend to our children, the way we worship, what we say to them. And what happens? Out of our mouth comes wind, spirit. And it's the words of Christ. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, we've become life-giving spirits. Of course, 
in a secondary way to Christ. Christ is the one that opens their hearts. We're the one who gives the words. Paul wants us to know, look, you're natural. You're going to be a spiritual body. You're going to go up and be with Christ, and he's going to come to the earth, and we're going to be life-giving. Now, here's the finish. Look at verse 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth. He's just dust. The second man is from heaven. As is the one of dust, so are those who are dust. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And here's his end point of this paragraph. So also, so also, and just as we have born, this word born is to put clothes on, just as we wore the clothes, the image of the earthy, the one of dust. Went a page too far. We shall also wear the image of the heavenly. Now, we could spend all kinds of times on the image. We don't have time. Our time is gone. But what he's saying is, okay, we're just like Adam. We're in the image of Adam. But on that Resurrection Day, we will all be completed in the image of Christ. Natural first, spiritual second. All right, let's turn to Philippians and then we will retire from this. Philippians chapter 3. And just because of what we just read in Corinthians, we need to read this. Verse 17, Paul writes, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. <laughs> he's not talking about people that you just throw out there as pagans. No, he's talking about people who claim to be Christians. We know pagans are enemies. What about the people who claim to be Christians? Like our president. And murder babies. What about those who claim to be Christian, like our president, and promote LGBTQ+. Well, Paul says, they're enemies of the cross. And he goes on, whose end is ruin, destructions, whose God is their appetite, the word is belly, and whose glory is is in their shame. Who set their mind on earthly things. But here's what we want. For our citizenship is in heaven. Well, we're on the earth. 
And it doesn't mean we're going to heaven to live as citizens. We are going to heaven when we die, not with a body. But just like I traveled to India many times, I went over in India, they want to know what passport do you carry? Well, I am a citizen of the United States. My citizenship is in the United States. Here's my passport to prove it. For our citizenship is in heaven. I have a heavenly citizenship from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subdue all things to himself. Paul is saying, watch us live this way because here's what's going to happen. These are going to get destruction. We're going to get from a humble body to a glorified body. And how is it going to happen? Because this Jesus ascended and he sat down at right hand of God the Father and everything, everything was put under his authority. Psalm 8. And so what does he have? He has power to do what he's doing, what he's going to do. Raise people from the dead and change us from imperishable, I mean perishable to imperishable, to no honor, to glory, from weakness to power, from natural to a fully physical, spiritual body like his. And what do we need this information for? Brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For our labor in him is not empty. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who did bear the awful penalty of our sin in his body on the tree and he died to sin that we might live to righteousness. And by his wounds, by his suffering, we've been healed. And we who were once straying from the guardian and shepherd of our souls have now returned in his work to the overseer and shepherd of our souls. And we thank you that even now we have the down payment of the Spirit so that we have our growing being conformed into the image of your dear Son. And we thank you that one day when Christ returns with all those who have fallen asleep in him, then those who have fallen asleep and those who remain at that point will fully be transformed with new resurrection spiritual bodies to rule and reign with Christ forever to enjoy his company and your company, to joy in you and be blessed by you, or as it says in Ephesians, to receive the riches of the kindness of your grace forever and ever. We praise your name. Amen.